Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Curling, who, among other mandates, runs Jupiter's Fund of Investment Trusts, a specialist vehicle that actually invests in a range of different investment trusts, but does so within an open-ended format. Richard has been managing this fund for the last five years, and uh, we're here today to talk about the merits of investment trusts, the drawbacks of investment trusts, and uh, what's going on in the markets generally. Can I start, Richard, perhaps by asking what are you trying to do that is potentially attractive to other investors? Okay, well, what I'm trying to do is, first of all, take advantage of um, the investment trust structure. So there are obviously discount opportunities there. But I think most of all, it is about, uh, first of all, trying to get the asset allocation right. How much should we have in Europe or Japan? Secondly, to pick the best manager within each area. And then thirdly, uh, where possible, to take advantage of discount arbitrage situations which still occur quite frequently in this sector. So buying at wide discounts, waiting for the discount to narrow, and then selling. Does that make you an activist investor? Are you looking for opportunities where the discount will naturally uh, revert to a more acceptable level? Yes, I think we do some. I mean, there are some... Sometimes pressure needs to be applied on the directors of investment trusts where the discount is uh, consistently trading at what I believe is too wide a level or, or where the discount is wider than the sector average uh, and the directors ought to be doing something to try and narrow that. You obviously work for a professional fund management group. Jupiter is one of the most successful, one of the more successful independent fund management groups around. Uh, what advantage do you have over, say, uh, an ordinary investor who's trying to pick a range of investment trusts for their own uh, benefit? Firstly, we have uh, great access to some very talented fund managers internally that can help with uh, insights into particular markets, you know, like India, for example, um, both in terms of what's going on within the Indian stock market itself and also what's going on in the various fund managers that invest in India. And that can be very helpful when we're looking at some of the more uh, esoteric fund management groups uh, with sometimes quite small investment trusts too. And this is a global fund. Uh, so it is, what do you take as your benchmark against which you, so you this like is to a global, um Yes, this is a glo- effectively a global mandate. So I'm trying to beat both the, uh, the investment trust subsector um, and also I'm trying to beat uh, global managed funds generally. And ultimately, I'm trying to make money for investors. It's often said that the performance of the best investment trusts is better than their equivalent open-ended funds. But on the other hand, there's a lot of investment trusts which either don't have counterparts in the open-ended sector or do have counterparts but aren't necessarily doing as good a job as they might be. So what in practice out of the University of Investment Trust, what kind of universe are you actually looking at? It is true that, uh, in general, the closed-ended vehicles, investment trusts, do outperform the open-ended vehicles, the unit trusts. Uh, And this may be due to uh, a number of things. The most obvious one is gearing, uh, but that, of course, works both ways. Another one may be the fact that it's a fixed pool of capital to invest. And so the manager of an investment trust doesn't have the flows of money coming into the fund and out of the fund. And those kind of uh, flows can 
quite seriously impact performance. Within the, the, the whole investment trust space, there are the normal equity funds, many of which have corresponding unit trusts uh, to compare directly with. But also, uh, there are a number of trusts that invest in uh, more specialist areas of the market where they can use their fixed capital pool uh, more effectively than unit trust by investing in some more illiquid assets. And these may be uh, very small companies, microcap companies, which really don't have the liquidity necessary to be a unit trust. And then there are whole areas like private equity, uh, which lend themselves to investment trust uh, investing much better than unit trusts. I mean, one of the features of those of us who follow investment trusts for some time, it's quite remarkable, is how the composition of the investment trust world, if you like, sector, has changed or seems to change quite regularly over time. There are periods when a particular type of investment is becomes popular. We had that with fund of hedge funds for a while, for example. Uh, we also had the split capital thing many years ago, which didn't end well. Um, and now we have a great uh, vogue for what's called alternative assets, um, things that are outside the mainstream equity and, and bond markets. Um, is that an opportunity or a threat? I mean, I think it's both. Um, I mean, it is very true that um, the FAD in investment trusts, or in fact nearly all the issuance in investment trusts in the last uh, two or three years, certainly, has been all uh, income-focused. It has been about companies coming forward with products to generate income for investors in a world where they find it very difficult to find income from traditional conventional sources. You can't get it on deposit, you can't get it in the bond market, it's quite difficult to get it in the equity market or it's very concentrated in relatively few companies. So there have been uh, some very interesting products that have come onto the market to generate income from for investors. Uh, some have gone very well and some have uh, yet to prove themselves. It's probably the best way of putting it. So you're thinking of things like um, infrastructure funds and things like that, which have specific yes. renewable energy, which are specifically designed to to generate an income, which may or may not be a genuine yield, of course. Um, I mean, you have to look behind the bonnet a little bit to find out whether what you're being paid is capital or income. Yes, I think that's very important. When, when, when looking at income products or income-generating companies, it's very important to know whether that is real income, i.e. whether the dividends are covered uh, by earnings or not. Some of them have been, of course, uh, hugely successful and very interesting investments for uh, for people. So like the infrastructure space, both conventional infrastructure, um, building schools and hospitals, um, operating infrastructures like airports and, uh, and roads, as well as the environmental infrastructure funds, solar panels and wind farms. Uh, and a lot of these are genuine income generating products. There may not be much capital growth there, but they are generating a good yield for investors now. Because they effectively they're backed, they're, they're linked to or supported by long-term contracts with the, the people who are um, obviously government agencies yes. or others who are building products which have a guaranteed real after-inflation return, which is then most of which is then passed on to the investors. Yes. So one of the one of the important things that I've been looking at is the inflation linking in a lot of these products. So to what degree are they protected if inflation takes off in this country over the next few years? And of course, that varies hugely, but it's, 
in many cases, the inflation linking is quite good. I mean, 70 or 80 percent uh, of any inflationary link will be reflected in the revenues of the company and therefore in the dividends. So inflation linking is quite good in the infrastructure companies, in the environmental infrastructure companies, um, which obviously derive 30 or 40 percent of their revenue from power prices and power prices are an integral part of inflation. Um, a, a trend recently has been uh, in the REIT space to... Uh, it's real estate investment trusts. Yeah, real estate investment trusts um, to produce, to basically buy property assets which have 100% inflation linking in their rental. So these are companies like Secure Income REIT so they will effectively be entirely inflation linked into the future. So that's quite a good protection for people who want an income and want to make sure that income is inflation protected. And what sort of yields are you getting on these kind of specialist income vehicles? Well, the, the benchmark yield is, uh, I think, between 5 and 6% uh, for most of them. Some yield a bit more and some a bit less, but where it's less, uh, we expect faster growth in the dividends, so an income that's increasing over time. But most of them, as you say, their capital value tends to fluctuate around par. Yes, most yeah. of the infrastructure companies of all types trade at a premium to their um, NAV, and that may be because they're being priced off the yield they generate, i.e. the 6% or so, rather than uh, priced off the official NAV, which, of course, is highly dependent on what discount rate you're using to discount the future cash flows to arrive at your NAV. Right. So, so when that discount changes, the NAV changes, and therefore it is a rather subjective view of what an asset is worth. If we're going into a period of, of rising interest rates and rising bond yields, is that going to be negative, positive, or neutral for these kind of instruments? They should be. Um, or most of them should be reasonably well linked in to any rises in interest rates or inflation. But one thing I would say is that, and it's important to realize, that the asset values of a lot of these companies will decline over time. So they are, for example, in the, say, solar panels, where the companies that invest in solar panels write their assets down to zero over 20 years because that's how long the subsidies uh, last for. Right. So in a sense, you know they're taking into account the fact that in the subsidy runs out in 20 years' time, which is good, but the asset value will be declining as you move towards that 20-year period, right. unless you can make acquisitions and renew the asset base. And that actually is a principle that applies to all of these infrastructure companies. Some of them are 20, 25 years, some of them are, are, are longer contracts. But in many of them, particularly the government uh, ones, the schools and hospitals, at the end of the contract, the infrastructure company doesn't actually own anything. So you would expect that, as it were, to decline towards a, so that a zero value. Decline it, uh, yes. And, but so long as they keep on making acquisitions, raising right. money and buying new infrastructure projects, then they can roll forward the time period for the average life of the project. So they're sort of postponing their date with destiny kind of thing. Yes, yeah. yes. But also I think one of the frustrations for many private investors is that they can't actually access these things in, when, they're, when they're initially issued in IPOs 
unless they have a, the right kind of relationship with a wealth manager or an intermediary. Uh, and by the time these things actually come to trade, they often the, the handsome headline yield of six percent or something is yes. turns out to be somewhat lower because it's it, the price has gone up to adjust to a different yes. yield. Yes, I think that's a that's a very legitimate concern or annoyance of people that it is in so many issuance now it is the institutional market, i.e. the investment trusts, investors, um, that benefit from this. Because as you say, they may come at uh, a fixed price and by the time they start floating on the market, when people can buy them, they're trading at a premium and the yield is lower. But I suppose the answer to that is that the regulators would take the view that this is a complex product for the reasons you've explained, that there are, there are things yeah. you need you need to analyze them more carefully. Just saying this is yielding 6% must be good. I'll put my money in. I think that's right. But it's a, it's a concern in the equity market too and has come in for a lot of criticism. Let's, uh, let's broaden this out a little bit and say... Here we are. Um, we've been a, we've had a very long bull market in equities, that is anyway, uh, and we've had a long bull market in fixed income as well. So we're at this point where interest rates are very low, yields generally are very low, and yet the uh, the stock market and uh, the bond market until uh, last summer uh, has been very strong in in capital terms. Two questions arise from that. One is, do you think, as a professional investor, uh, that um, the market is looking fully valued and, and, and maybe uh, in for a relatively uh, poor run, <coughs> uh, as many believe, as interest rates rise. And secondly, do you think that um, an environment of rising uh, bond yields will be negative for the investment trust sector? In other words, are, is it more likely to create uh, wider discounts than we've seen recently? Well, firstly, I think we are in the very mature phases of bull market in both equities and bonds. Uh, and as you rightly say, certainly in bonds, it's been a 35-year bull market in it. Um, uh, and I think that valuations do look, by any historic measure, uh, pretty stretched. So markets are expensive and shares are expensive. And, th and that's looking even on a 10-year um, rolling historic average earnings basis. Um, one of the problems, of course, is that people have been pricing assets, and equities are one of those, off a fixed interest market, which essentially is at the wrong level, is a fool's market because of the intervention by governments uh, that have suppressed interest rates lower than they might otherwise have been through monetary policy. And that has led to a difficulty in, in how you decide what is expensive and what isn't. And Most think, people seem to have given up the ghost on that one. Yes, I think, I, think that's, I think that's fair. So let, let's not dwell on that. So I think, basically, I think that markets are expensive. I think we are in a mature phase of a bull market. I think that it may continue, though. Um, I think that history teaches us that uh, markets don't fall just because they're expensive, in the same way as share prices of companies often don't fall and just because they're expensive. There needs to be a catalyst to cause some kind of panic or sell-off. So that, uh, you know, maybe credit out of control or an oil crisis or a political crisis of some kind. So just being expensive I don't, doesn't mean that they're going to start going down. And of course the problem is that almost by definition, if there is going to be a catalyst, it's actually very difficult to forecast when it's going to happen. Yes. Uh, and where it indeed is going to happen. An unknown, unknown. And indeed, many people have been predicting uh, some sort of negative 
set back for several years now, and there have been obvious pretexts like the, the Euro crisis and so on that might have turned into these things, but in practice haven't. But looking out at the moment, you can't see a catalyst, uh, and, and, and nor can most people see the, the catalyst other than a general sense of unease at the at the level of valuations and a worry about what actually will happen to bond yields as they start to rise. Yes, I think sentiment is quite positive at the moment, and people have been looking at the market through the lens of the glass half full rather than half empty. So in the US, for example, they've been looking at the positive aspects of the Trump administration, so potentially big infrastructure spend, uh, potentially big tax reforms being passed through, potentially a lot of money held by companies offshore coming back to the US to invest. They hadn't been looking at um, some of the maybe negative aspects or potentially negative aspects of a Trump administration, which is uh, issues around trade, trade barriers, the decline of globalization, or at least the peaking out of globalization, which as a principle has made the world richer. And I know there may be issues about how that wealth has been distributed, but it has made the world richer over the last few decades. So that issue has to be sort of unwound at some point. So I think that does. And uh, and I'm not sure that we are going to see a big increase in bond yields, certainly in the short term, interest rates going up. Um, we're having a big debate about this uh, recently, and we asked for a vote in the room that we were in, and it was about half thought that the bull market was over, and bonds and half thought that it wasn't. Um, interestingly, our bond manager specialist thought that it wasn't. He might say that, of course. He might well say that. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think that it's not it's not a it's not a given that interest rates are going to go up and that bond yields are going to go up. But I think that we can, over the long term, look to some what might be called normalization, I guess, of interest rates. And they are, I think, at the moment at an abnormally low level. So over time, I think interest rates will rise back to a normal level. I don't think that's necessarily bad, because I think when it happens, it will be accompanied by a strong economy. Um, and with that, in all probability, a strong equity market. So I think interest rates going up to 3 maybe 4% is fine. I think it's when it goes up beyond that that then becomes an issue. So in other words, a return to what uh, those of uh, our generation would call normal normal levels uh, would, would be just normalisation. It wouldn't be something to worry about. Yes, I think that's right. What about the threat of inflation? Do you have a, a sort of bias or an intuitive feel about what might happen to inflation, which would be significant if it came back in a uh, persistent form? Yes, um, I, I, I think it would. And we, of course, are of the inflation generation. In other words, we're quite old. Yes. <laughs> we're getting older. Brought anyway. up in an age where inflation was <laughs> was the big economic evil that had to be slain. So uh, I think in QE has been very successful in avoiding deflation, which was, with the amount of indebtedness in the world, the one really big danger that the world faced in the period after the financial crisis. Um, as QE stops and normalization occurs, I think that a small amount of inflation comes back into the system automatically. So for us, whether that's through devaluation, so broadly speaking, a 20% devaluation since Brexit uh, means that everything we import has gone up by 20%. So, But that is essentially a one-off 
to get inflation really taking off in the system, you need a more ingrained cycle to develop, um, whereby inflation price rises feed into wage rises, which feed into price rises in a sort of vicious circle. And I think there's very little sign of that happening uh, and very little risk that it could happen in the same way now as it did in maybe 20, 30 years ago, in the sense that we are more global economy and there is a huge deflationary pressures that are still there. One thing is for sure, I'm afraid, is that there is a lot of debt still in the world and the best way of getting rid of debt uh, is the way that nobody notices happening, and that is through inflation. And therefore, government policy, I think, would be very pleased to see a bit of inflation in the system reducing debt. If it went to 4% or something, I think yes. they'd be quite relaxed about that in practice, even if uh, they might tut, -tut about it. And 4% compounding over time would yep. reduce debt levels quite significantly. Yeah. For the investment trust investor like yourself, so what are you doing? Let's start with perhaps what are you what are you trying to achieve? You mentioned that at the beginning, and then look at actually how you're implementing that. What what trusts are you buying? What kind of trust are you buying? Um, are they tend to be uh, the larger, more liquid ones, and so on? And, and are they global, UK, all that kind of stuff? What I'm trying to achieve is to make money for investors, and the first thing I'm looking at is trying to get the asset allocation right. So, um, how much we have in the US, UK, Japan. Etc. Second thing is to try and pick the best manager in each area. Third thing is to try and take advantage of discounts when there is a discount opportunity. Now, in the investment trust space at the moment, discounts tend to be quite tight by historic standards. Um, but there are some uh, pockets of value, I think, still. One of them, for example, is in the UK small cap sector. And I think that has uh, always traded on quite wide discounts but still does relative to other trusts. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the big exposure they have to the domestic UK economy, which people are still very nervous about post-Brexit. So give us, give us an example of uh, the kind of uh, trust you might be owning in that sector and why you've chosen them rather than some others. It's not just a discount, presumably. It's no, it's not just a discount. I think also there are some extremely good managers in the UK small cap sector. And in those, I would include um, the Hendersons, BlackRock, Standard Life, all have excellent UK small cap investment trusts uh, with, I think, extremely good managers. And some of them have been trading on sort of nearly as a 15% discount. Yes, mid-teens mid -teens discounts. And in fact, yeah. earlier this year, they were on, you know, out to 20, some of them. So that's an interesting area, I think. From a discount point of view as well as... A, as a, From as a discount like point a, of view yeah. as well as an interesting... Op so I'm trying to combine together... Uh, what is uh, an interesting space to invest in, probably because it's cheap, uh, with something that has got big um, discount opportunities, so you can buy assets at a big discount, and if performance is good, discounts tend to narrow. So a previous one, you know, private equity uh, has been a, a tremendous performer in terms of discount contraction. Going back four or five years, they were yeah. up to 30% or yes, something. Yes, or more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just even this year, they've closed in an awful lot. So, but in terms of asset allocation, let's take regional. I mean, you, you, uh, how do you think about this? You, are you conscious of benchmark weightings, or do you say um, this is an area where there's a particularly strong manager, and therefore I would hope to be able to outperform with that? With that trust? Yes, I think that I, I think that 
um, the structure of the investment trust sector is very different from the structure of the global market, the global indices. And that is particularly highlighted in the US because investment trusts have very little exposure to the US, direct exposure. There are very few US investment trusts. Uh, and US, of course, is about half of the global um, indices. Um, the best way to get exposure to that is probably through the um, the big global investment trusts. So uh, Scottish Mortgage at the um, more futuristic uh, tech end of the tech market. Tech end of the market, yeah. Or Monks, for example, which is a more more diversified global portfolio, which is done very well, managed by Bailey Gifford. Um, so I like you know both of those, and both of those have reasonably good exposure to the US as well. Uh, Japan is an area that has uh, some very good managers in it too. And actually here, Bailey Gifford stars again extremely well, both in large cap and small cap in Japan. What about emerging markets? Is that is that an yes. area where investment trusts generally do well? Or? I've been putting some more money into emerging markets recently. I bought uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, which has had a uh, torrid time performance-wise until the middle of last year when the manager changed. A new manager came in uh, and performance has markedly improved since then. So that's a kind of good example where it was an interesting space to invest in because emerging markets you know, had underperformed. Uh, there was a catalyst for a particular trust in terms of a new manager and the trust, because of its poor historic performance, was trading at a big discount. So that's kind of worked quite well on all fronts in that emerging markets performed well, the discounts narrowed, so we've got the double upside. In investment trusts, the great opportunity is the double upside. I'm just looking through the list of, of, of other trusts that you own uh, where you have a, a significantly above benchmark weighting. Um, and I see you, you've got International Biotech and you've got Worldwide, Worldwide Healthcare Trust. And then you've also got um, Fidelity Asian Values and uh, one of the specialist Indian funds. You mentioned that before. Yes. Um, again, is that because you see value in the region or because you, uh, or you see value in the trust itself or both? Well, firstly, um, the healthcare trusts, um, which I own because I think there's a very good structural growth story in healthcare globally. Uh, and that is both in development markets and also in emerging markets. And I think it's such a complex area that you really need specialist managers, a specialist manager who does nothing but invest in healthcare companies. Uh, and that is all the more so when it comes to biotech, because this is not an area for the generalist uh, to get involved. And I think that's a recipe for burnt fingers in trying to do that. So that is why I own uh, specialist healthcare and specialist biotech trusts. Because I think you need real expertise to invest successfully in that area. But it's also an, under, <coughs> an underlying story of growth. I mean, it's and it's an underlying above story average growth, of growth. You of think anyway? We think with yeah. a structural growth story over time. Although, um, you know, in the short term there are obviously uh, potential headwinds from Trump again and his um, reforms in that area. Whatever he's going to do, um, if he knows himself. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So, and India is a, is an interesting one. Um, Indeed, I think India is, is one of the most interesting emerging markets for a number of reasons. Both it has a, a demographic profile that exceeds all other major emerging markets in the sense it's got a growing population of working age, yes. unlike China where demographics are moving in the opposite direction. There is obviously a tremendous 
catalyst in terms of President Modi's reforms um, that are going through, and that has been um, enhanced by the recent elections in India, which basically reaffirmed his uh, mandate to carry through those reforms. So structural, a growing market, um, structural reforms taking place, uh, an entrepreneurial market, and uh, some good trusts to invest in in that area. Um, and one of them that seems to be out of India Capital Growth Fund is, is not a well-known trust, but it seems to trade on uh, quite a big discount, so on 18% discount at the moment, uh, whereas the other two kind of core India trusts, J.P. Morgan and Aberdeen's trusts, are both on about uh, 10, 11. Maybe because the, the fund manager is not so well-known, doesn't have such a high profile as... Yes, as and I think the management house is also not so well-known and doesn't have the resources for marketing the trust. Yes. Um, in the way it's not a well-known brand like J.P. Morgan or Aberdeen. But looking down this list, so we talked before about um, some of the uh, the yield uh, trusts. You, you you don't they don't seem to figure in the top half of your holdings, or perhaps I'm looking at the wrong the wrong presentation. <laughs> well, I would have do, thought you might have some ballast in there in that form. Oh, right, no, we do have. Um, I do run a, a different fund, which is an income fund, uh, looking mainly at the investment trust area. So that is a different fund, and we do have. Um, we have about half and half. Half of it is invested in equities, uh, and equities uh, that pay a dividend and, importantly, a growing dividend. And then half of that is invested in alternatives, of which I categorise real estate, debt, private equity, infrastructure uh, as being part of the alternative space. And we have a range of um, investments in there from anything from aircraft leasing to solar panels to wind farms to um, some of the debt stroke lending vehicles and as I say one of the things I've been trying to do with that is make sure that uh, two things one is that uh, they are reasonably inflation linked revenues so that the dividend is protected and can rise in times of inflation and the other thing is to make sure that if interest rates do go up that they benefit from that process uh, by having floating rate investments rather than fixed rate investments. So they are not bonds. Uh, well, we mentioned gearing, but we haven't talked about the benefit of having uh, a board of directors. I mean, many years, over many years ago, people used to think of the investment trust sector as being a very sleepy place where where retired executives went to become non-execs of, of investment trusts and nothing ever much changed. They never instituted change. Um, how far do you think that has changed? I mean, there have been some significant moves, I think, but but is it has it uh, gone far enough? I think that most boards are pretty good these days, and I think there are lots of examples of um, trusts that have been reformulated effectively as a result of their board of directors saying to the existing manager, this isn't good enough, or we want to try something different. Um, and they are there at the end of the day to represent the interests of their shareholders, i.e. the underlying investor. Uh, and I think that's a very useful role that they play, and not least in, in holding the manager to account, both the individual that's running, running the money and also the investment house uh, that is running the money. And when we do see changes, trust changes manager, I think that is all credit to the board of directors for bringing that about. Sometimes, though, they have to be given a bit of a kicking by, yes, by I think, outside I think, agents. I mean, having said that, having said that, I think there are 
there is still some way to go. And I think there are some trusts that um, boards of directors that are not as good as others. Um, and I think it is incumbent upon the big shareholders in investment trusts uh, to keep the pressure on the directors uh, to ensure that they do act in the best interest of their shareholders. I have a number of meetings with, with uh, directors of investment trusts uh, to discuss what they, well, strategy, what they should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and particularly when it comes to things like uh, share buybacks, um, discount control issues, and ultimately when performance has been so poor for so long that the manager needs to be changed. One of the one of the issues that I think also does need addressing and that perhaps some directors fall down on is there are several trusts that uh, could and perhaps should merge together. Trusts that are managed by the same individual hold the same portfolio of shares and yet exist in two corporate identities. And if we put them together, we'd have a single bigger trust that would be more liquid in terms of buying and selling and have proportionately lower costs, of course. And it's a mystery as to why those mergers don't happen. Related to that issue is this one about costs. I mean, it always, again, it was always said about investment trusts that one of the advantages, as well as gearing and having better, perhaps, corporate governance, many people think, um, or not, as the case may be, is that uh, their fees were lower than, uh, on average than the, uh, the open-ended universe. However, since the uh, regulators sort of changed the rules in the uh, retail distribution review uh, three or four years ago, uh, that was that is no longer self-evidently the case that investment trusts are cheaper, necessarily cheaper than their uh, open-ended equivalents. And wearing your hat as a as a as a fund of investment trust investor, are you are you actively campaigning for fees to be reduced in the investment trust sector? Very much so, and I think that uh, firstly the benchmark uh, for comparison, i.e., unit trusts, has moved from with the change in regulations from one and a half percent to 075 percent. And I think that some investment trusts are being quite slow to realize that that fee, the fee has to come down to be at least as competitive with unit trusts in order to effectively have a future, given you've got some additional costs on top to pay for. Uh, some boards have been very effective at uh, uh, driving a better bargain with their managers and driving fees down. Some have done it voluntarily. You know, uh, Bailey Gifford is a good example on their big trust. They've reduced the fees voluntarily uh, um, and all credit to them for doing that. Um, I do think that it is incumbent upon directors to keep pressure up on fees. And I think when trusts get bigger, I have issuance and get bigger, fees should come down uh, to reflect that increase in size. But I will say there's one other point about this, which is quite interesting, I think, from what you've said. Uh, on the one hand, you know, a lot of people say it's been a very positive development that invest, more investment trusts now have instituted discount controls under which some of them commit, absolutely others, they say we will endeavour to keep the discount within a particular range. And yet, on the other hand, you've been saying that, you know, when you look at smaller companies trust, they create some wonderful bargains when they go to discounts. Mm. So what's, where does your interest lie as an investor between... Uh, uh, having the um, the uh, the certainty or, or near certainty of a, of, of uh, a discount control mechanism versus the opportunity to buy something on on a very attractive discount in the first place. Well, I'm torn by it because 
if everybody had effective discount control mechanisms, there wouldn't be the, the bargains out there that we sometimes come across. I think trying to control the discount of an investment trust is very difficult. Uh, and I think it, it can be a mugs game trying to buy in shares just to control the discount. The way to control the discount is to improve performance and make it a more attractive investment for people to buy. That will control the discount. What I do think is there is an opportunity uh, when discounts are big for the directors to buy in shares just for value accretion because buying your own shares at 20% discount and cancelling them creates value for your existing shareholders. Um, and I think that's a, you know, a good thing to do when the discount is big enough. Even if it means a reduction in the fees to the, to the investment manager, it's less money to look after. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, no doubt the investment managers don't like that much. But, uh, but anyway, I do think, I do think it's, uh, it is an important issue. I mean, I think it, there's been a, a move by some trusts to go to a zero discount policy. Um, and I think that is fine in theory. But I think one of the issues with it um, is that, uh, well, not only does it eliminate the opportunity, but the liquidity issues. One of the great advantages of investment trust is having this fixed pool of capital to enable you to invest in some more illiquid investments. And if you have a zero discount policy, you effectively are obliged to buy in shares whenever they're on offer. And therefore, you effectively become an open-ended vehicle. And therefore, you lose that advantage. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground here. But just sort of summing up, we, we, uh, there's some office risks on the horizon, but as yet no uh, apparent reason to think that things are going to go badly wrong in the short term. I suppose the question to ask is, are you satisfied that the investment trust sector is now uh, sort of well diversified enough, big enough, broad enough, uh, after allowing for all these issues you've mentioned, is the investment trust sector in 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 a healthy state overall? Uh, yes, I think it's in a very healthy state. I think it's evolving uh, in an interesting way in that it's moving away from competing directly with vanilla equity unit trusts. So there's been very few new investment trusts over the last five years. Very few new investment trusts launched investing just in. That is, I think, perceived to be more the unit trust game today. So all the new companies, and there have been many, many very interesting new investment trusts that have come along, have all been in the alternative space, perhaps using the advantages of investment trusts as a fixed pool of capital to take on opportunities where unit trusts can't take the opportunity. So in a sense, they're diverging and doing a different job. And investment trusts are carving out a very good and interesting niche role for themselves in investing in these spaces that uh, unit trusts can't. Good. Well, thank you, Richard, very much for your thoughts across the sector. It is a fascinating sector and um, wish you very well with your future progress in this, uh, in this deep ecological pool. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.